Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. I'm Clara Young. I'm with Claire L. Evans, who's the author of the book Broadband, The Untold Story of Women Who Made the Internet. She founded Vice's Terraform, a site featuring futuristic fiction, and she's also a musician. Broadband is a book that tells a story that hadn't been told before. Of the many women who helped found and form the internet, women like Ada Lovelace, the original mother of computing, and Dame Wendy Hall, who invented a new system of hypertext that could have changed the way the World Wide Web functions. Until 1984, computer science in the US was full of women mathematicians and programmers. And then it all changed. Claire, what happened in 1984? Well, it's not one cut and dry thing. It's really the consequence of a number of factors conspiring simultaneously to drive women out of programming. So you're right. Before 1984, you know, in the 60s and 70s, women were a significant percentage of the workforce in the computing industry, and they earned 40% of computer science degrees at American universities until about 1984, the mid-80s, which is when that number started to dive and kept diving um, and has continued to dive. Um, it's a lot of things that, you know, the usual stuff that you would expect, wage disparity, lack of mentorship as that first generation of female computing pioneers aged out of the workplace, a, a sort of structural unwillingness to make space for childcare. But really, it was more like a shift in the professional credentials and educational requirements necessary to get a job as a programmer. Because in the early days of programming, it wasn't a job that was considered to be very important. It was something that was seen as kind of an afterthought. Fortunately, women entered that space, made massive contributions, and created value there, turned programming from this sort of menial kind of secretarial job into something that had the significance that it has today, something that is closer to a language or an art form. But yes, it is unfortunately the consequence of their success that led to uh, a sort of professionalization in the field where you know, certain factors became more formalized. You needed to have a specific kinds of degrees in order to get a job as a programmer. Um, degrees that were perhaps harder for people who had to leave school and raise families to get. Um, it had historically been a job you could get without a degree. And it went from being called programming to being called software engineering. And the phrase software engineering comes with a lot of baggage, but it also uh, is usually affiliated with associations to specific professional groups that uh, women had a harder time getting into. So it's all these things kind of working together to sort of masculinize the field as it professionalized. And that seems to have set this male dominant precedent that has really only been reinforced over the years through marketing and uh, a sort of sense of misconception as being somehow natural to computing. But it's not. It's, it's a complete anachronism. Certainly, uh, you know, according to the numbers that we have at the OECD, it's definitely still the case that computer engineering and all that remains masculine. You know, by age 15, only a half percent of girls want to work in IT compared to 5% of guys. And uh, in 2017, there were more than twice as many men as women programmers in OECD countries. So it's oh, yeah. getting even worse. It is getting even worse. My hope is that it's a generational thing. I mean, it took a generation and change to get to this place. Um, and it may take another generation and change to pull ourselves out of it. The important thing, I think, is for girls to see themselves represented in some aspect of this industry, because it's very difficult to break into an industry where you don't see very many people like you. Um, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, it makes it very difficult to have conversations, to contribute things, to learn things without feeling intimidated. So, I mean, for me, writing the book was a project in sort of creating 
uh, historical foundation and a precedent for young girls who might be interested in this field, something to sort of empower them and give them the sense of, I'm as entitled to be here as any man. I was very surprised to learn of uh, all the women who had been in the field before, like um, Ada Lovelace. How did she get into computer programming? She was the daughter of the poet Lord Byron, so poetry, mathematics, it's quite surprising, isn't it? <laughs> she was the first computer programmer exactly. over yeah. a century before the invention of the modern computer as we know it. But yes, she was a brilliant, uh, mathematically inclined young woman. In fact, because her father was a poet and kind of this louche character, her mother insisted on a rigorous mathematical education for her when she was growing up to sort of stamp out her father's romantic genes. <laughs> um, and so she threw herself into mathematics with the same kind of passion and sort of metaphysical, um, you know, sort of spiritual intensity that her father threw himself into literature. And she had this kind of brilliant mind. Um, she was able to sort of understand very complex things very quickly. She, you know, if she had lived in another time, she could have been um, a famous mathematician. But because she was a woman, she was unable to access higher education. She learned pretty much everything by correspondence with um, some of her era's most luminary scientists who kind of took her under her wing. But when she was a teenager, she met this man, Charles Babbage, who was a famous scientist and engineer in London. And he had been working on these proto-proto computing machines. And uh, Ada saw this at a salon event at his house, a sort of social event, and fell in love with the machine and understood its workings more quickly than anybody else did at that time. And really dedicated herself to helping Charles Babbage both create programs for this sort of semi-hypothetical machine uh, and to sort of popularize and explain its workings to the scientific establishment of his day. So she wrote this very famous set of notes um, on the workings of the machine, which included mathematical proofs for this machine that are characterized as being the very first computer programs. And she had some insights about what computing would be and how it would work that were really a century ahead of their time. She understood that it wouldn't just be about crunching specific numbers. It wouldn't just be about making differential equations go quickly. What about Grace Hopper? She programmed Harvard's Mark I computer, which calculated ballistic missile arcs during the Second World War. What's her contribution? Yes, well, most people don't know this. I mean, computing emerged from World War II because the Allied forces needed to calculate these sort of very complex ballistic arcs. They were trying to... Uh, help the soldiers at the front figure out how to aim their missiles more accurately. So computing emerges from this kind of dark, somewhat sinister uh, point of origin. But mm -hmm. so the people that were calculating those ballistic arcs by hand before the invention of the mechanical computer were rooms full of human, female human computers, um, kind of the same style as you probably have seen uh, in the film Hidden Figures or read in the book. These were women that were doing math by hand uh, in order to solve complex problems for the government. So there were already rooms full of women doing these ballistic calculations by hand. Grace Hopper was one of those women. She was slightly different because she had a PhD. Um, she was the 11th woman to get a PhD in mathematics from Yale. And she was assigned to program one of these really early computing machines at Harvard, sight unseen. I mean, she was given the job as soon as she got out of basic training. She had no idea what she was getting into. She came face to face with this machine, the first of its kind in the world, and was told, you know, get this working, you know, put math on this thing. Make it understandable. And we're talking about a computer the size, yeah, make it understandable. And we're talking about a computer the size of a room with absolutely no instruction manual, no precedent whatsoever. She didn't have an engineering background. So she basically had to reverse engineer the whole thing 
and give herself a sort of bootleg engineering education in order to understand how to put complex mathematical propositions onto this machine. She figured it out. Um, she became the head programmer of this computer, the Harvard Mark I, and then the Harvard Mark II, its successor, and in doing so was in charge of some of the most important calculations of the war, including the central equation for the implosion of the atomic bomb. Somewhat dubious, I know, but she but apparently came up she with didn't know at the time processes. that's what it was going to be used for. Yeah, of course, everything was super top secret. But um, she came up with processes and workflows that are still, you know, fundamental to how programming is done today. It was really after the war when she sort of entered into the early commercial computing industry and found ways to make the work of programming easier and more efficient that really were the most important. And she's known as the godmother of COBOL, which is one of the most important um, computer programming languages of the 20th century. So really an important uh, figure and a really charismatic and interesting figure as well. You make the point that Grace Hopper wanted to make programming language more accessible to users who weren't necessarily familiar with computers, and that women in general thought about computing from the user experience. Yeah, well, in Grace Hopper's generation, that first generation of female programmers to get jobs in the commercial industry, they were running programming teams at the earliest computer companies. And this is in a time when programming or software wasn't an off-the-shelf thing. You didn't just design a piece of software and sell it, you know, in mass to companies. You would, for every single computer sold, design a custom software installation and update and maintain that custom software installation for those companies. So it was a huge job. It was a job that was not just programming, but also kind of customer support and, you know, debugging and updates. And it was very involved. And the women who were doing that job in the early days were just incredibly overworked. And that's part of the reason that they were so interested in making it easier, <laughs> I mean, frankly, for themselves and for their customers. They wanted to create software languages that would be readable or understandable to non-technical people so that the non-technical people at the software installations that they were setting up, like the supervisors and managers at the governmental and, and corporate clients that they had, could solve problems on their own without having to call them up and bring the programmers in to fix it. So it's true that throughout the history of women in computing, you often see women in the sort of user-centric spaces or the user-facing spaces. But I think it's actually much more about the fact that computer science has always marginalized people who are interested in users. It's always considered the user-facing side to be less than, less important than the back end, less important than the sort of hardcore technical back end of any individual software product. And because of that, women have often ended up in that space because it's been easier to get jobs in that space. So you see a lot of women in, you know, user experience design, for example. The consequence of that is that women have made amazing contributions on the user-facing side. But I think it's more about the way that we have siloed and separated those two aspects of computing uh, rather than any specific aptitude that women have. You wrote something in your book that I had never really thought about and perhaps hasn't struck other people, is that writing software involves a lot of social skills. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. Software is a mechanism by which human beings facilitate tasks for other human beings, right? So in order to do that effectively, one has to understand the task, understand the mental model of the person or people approaching that task, um, understand the context in which they operate and, you know, how to translate all the messy realities of human life into code. And social skills are essential to that. And by social skills, I don't just mean getting along well with others. Technology touches human life. And in order to do that effectively, you have to understand human life. It's 
you know, and it's also a question of understanding and creating reasonable and realistic deliverables and understanding how to talk to the client. I mean, these kinds of on the sort of more professional side um, are, is also really important, you know, knowing how to set expectations and, and, uh, and goals and communicate accurately to the client what you're building. These are also all sort of more fundamental social skills that are important in the task of programming. And all that holds true um, for writing algorithms today for machine learning programs, right? What are your thoughts about AI if so few women are writing algorithms? Yeah, um, yes. I mean, I think any technological product, AI included, suffers when there is a lack of diversity in the teams building them because you can't really anticipate how things are going to be uh, rolled out and how things are going to affect society unless you have a lot of different stakeholders at the table. AI is a particularly scary discipline, I think, in this regard because it is so dependent on data sets that can often be riddled with biases. And, you know, we've seen that uh, over and over again already in software products which have a hard time distinguishing people by race, for example, or um, which reiterate or perpetuate existing uh, social problems rather than finding us a way out of them. I think that it's very, very scary to imagine that machine learning, like any field of computer science, is, is dominated by a sort of monoculture because the implications are much more far-reaching and significant, I think. So, yes. It's, Get more women in there. It worries me greatly. Yeah. Get more everyone in there. You know, it's not just about women. It's also about racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, cultural background. We really can't know how technology is going to touch our lives unless we have a fair representation of the people it's going to touch. Because sometimes a monocultural group of engineers doesn't always think of the implications of what they do. In my last question is this. When I was preparing for this interview, I listened to an interview you did on NPR's Science Friday. And you were a guest along with Stacey Horn, who started a women-friendly chat room called Echo. I think it was in the 1980s. And she Mm -hmm. said, I started Echo with all these wonderful dreams of community and conversation. And the minute people got together, conflict arose. But then she goes on to say, and in a way, there's great value for trolls. If you can somehow mitigate their conversational skills, you can safely online get into the heads of someone that you disagree with. And that's something I wanted to ask you about because with everything going digital now, what can we do to make our online lives a place where we can civilly talk and disagree with each other and carry on with democracy? I think in the early days of the internet, it was small enough and new enough to feel like something kind of other, like this new domain where we could start anew. And a lot of the early contributors to internet culture and internet community imagine that we'd be entering into this democratic realm where even if we disagreed with people, we could have civil discourse, we could get into their heads, we could hash it out, we could safely work through conflict with trolls, quote unquote. We could connect with one another without any of the binds of gender or race or class. We could just connect mind to mind and you know, all of that is so lovely, but as we know, it hasn't really panned out that way. What happened instead is that we brought all of our baggage with us into cyberspace. And so now the problems of the network are the problems of the world and vice versa. So I think we have to kind of seriously revise our sense of scale, if that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's really unrealistic to imagine that we can monitor and protect people at the scale of something like Facebook, you know, which is a community of the billions of people, because in order to pull that off, you have to outsource all moderation to these sort of contract laborers Mm. who are bearing the collective trauma of our entire society so that we can talk about puppies and kittens online. 
and that's not healthy. Um, the, and the other option is to automate moderation, which is basically impossible. So I don't know what the answer is. Make mini Facebooks for <laughs> the rest of the world or, or maybe just <laughs> remember that community is a much smaller proposition than some massive multi-billion dollar company with billions and billions of users. Well, and read the book, Broadband, the Untold Story yes. of Women Who Made the Internet. <laughs> remind us of the yes, way Yes, read the book. Were. That'll help. Well, thanks very much, Claire. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about women in digitalization, check out our report, Going Digital, Shaping Policies, Improving Lives. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.